Thank you, praise team, and a big uh, shout out and thank you to all our uh, audiovisual team and Laura for putting those song lyrics together each week and everybody that's behind the scenes to help uh, make worship happen. Thanks to Calvin, especially for the choice of songs this morning, leads in very well into that scripture passage, and Andrew for reading and so on. Let's pray. Lord, we do need your cleansing. We need to be washed white as snow. We thank you for the cross. And Lord, we need your saving grace in our lives so much. Lord, we think we know best. Sometimes we don't want to hear from you. Lord, take that away and just make us open this morning to let your word speak to us. In Christ's name, amen. God-powered humility and helpfulness. Uh, first section, partnership or partisanship, battling the vanity virus. Our focus today is humility. Now, humility is not thinking less of yourself in the sense of putting yourself down, but rather thinking of yourself less by focusing more on Jesus and consequently others as well. Because, as we'll see, Jesus leads the way for us in humbling himself. And, in fact, his spirit indwelling us becomes the engine that empowers humility and obedience and service. Has anyone heard the three secrets of French cooking? Butter, butter, and butter. Similarly, if you're looking for the recipe for what makes a top-notch Christian, we might say humility, humility, and humility. Famous Reformed theologian John Calvin quoted St. Augustine when writing Institutes of the Christian Religion. When a certain rhetorician, that's a speaker, was asked what was the chief rule of eloquence, he replied, delivery. What was the second rule? Delivery. What was the third rule? Delivery. So if you ask me, Augustine says, concerning the precepts of the Christian religion, first, second, third, and always, I would answer humility. What's the opposite of humility? Well, we might say someone's very full of himself or full of herself, stuck up. Such a person is proud, conceited, vain, self-focused, often to the point of being arrogant. Others seem to mean little to them. It's hard to reason with them. Their mind's made up, and it's their way or the highway, yes. Not partnership, but partisanship. A current illustration of partisanship is, of course, the election south of the border, vividly represented by Thursday night's debate between two candidates. At the end of the day, the public will have to choose one or the other, but not both. I found this debate much better to watch than the first one because they stuck better to the content and answering the questions posed by the moderator instead of just attacking the other candidate. The mute button was a good innovation. All they need now is a fact-check buzzer that sounds loudly when someone speaks an untruth. However, then I should probably install the same thing here for my sermons. Ah. Partisanship may belong in politics, but not in the church. In Paul's second chapter to the church at Philippi, he urges them strongly to develop unity and oneness. 2 verses 1 to 4. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, 
If any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, today's key word, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Being united with Christ. Fellowship with the Spirit. That's koinonia, sharing in common, participating together. He goes on to say, be like-minded, have the same love. Be one in spirit and purpose. Does this sound like a church near you? It ought to. Unfortunately, church history is riddled with the carnage of denominational splits and doctrinal splinters. There's no fight like a church fight, probably because both parties feel they have God on their side. Paul in these verses lists several enemies of unity and oneness, things that contribute to partisanship instead of partnership. Verse 3, selfish ambition or vain conceit. Verse 4, looking only to your own interests. Hold on a minute. Isn't that the way the world expects us to be? If we're all just random molecules bumping into each other, evolving from primordial soup, what's to prevent big fish from eating little fish, the survival of the fittest? Our capitalist consumer culture grooms us through endless advertising to ask, what's in it for me? We do it all for you. Sounds like it's very legitimate for us to want everybody else to cater to our creaturely desires. But scripture teaches that selfish ambition is one of the deeds of the flesh. Omitting quite a bit in this list from Galatians 5:19 on, the acts of the sinful nature, the deeds of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, witchcraft, just I'd throw that in there with Halloween coming up, hatred, discord, and it's okay to dress up and get candy, but I'm talking about witchcraft there. Uh, selfish ambition here is in this list, notice. Dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Ooh, that's stern talk. Persist in selfish ambition, and you'll miss out on being eternally with God. Or as C.S. Lewis observed, the doors of hell are locked from the inside. Hell's theme song is, I did it my way. Vain conceit, verse 3, is literally empty glory. New Living Translation, trying to impress others. We love to make ourselves look good. We fill our Facebook or Instagram stream with only the most flattering selfies that portray us and our lifestyle in the best possible light. It seems foreign to our culture, unthinkable, for Paul to say in verse 4, each of you should look not only, where I lost myself here, look not only to your own interests. Wouldn't our economy dramatically slow down or even collapse if we started looking to others' interests instead of just our own? Another apostle, James, warns about the true source of selfish ambition in James 3, 14 to 16. It says, but if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly and spiritual of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, 
There you find disorder and every evil practice. Disorder. Hmm. COVID. Racial tensions. Political differences. People being out of work. All these contribute to our current unrest and instability. Indigenous and non-indigenous blobster fishers clashing in the Maritimes. Neighbors are kind of supposed to call in illegal overcapacity gatherings on snitch lines given COVID restrictions. So much strife and unrest and it would seep into church fellowship too. Next section, the no in kenosis. What's the key to humility in all this crockpot stewing selfishness? Paul points us to Jesus. In what seems to be poetry, perhaps an early Christian hymn, verses 6 to 11 highlight the path Jesus chose to take in order to become someone who could save us. Verse 5, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Not just because he's a good model, but because through repentance and baptism we have been sunk into him and have his spirit living in us and transforming us. Verse 6, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Jesus was in very nature God before creation and time existed. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Hebrews 1.3, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being sustaining all things by his powerful word. The beauty and love and goodness of God the Father is also found in God the Son, along with power and omniscience and other divine attributes. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Yet in order to become our Savior, Jesus divested himself of heavenly privileges and came to earth, being born as a dependent and fragile baby, enduring hunger and tiredness and discomfort like other humans. Others put it, he stripped himself of the insignia of majesty. He did not count it a prize which must be clung to tenaciously, but was willing to lay aside his glory and make himself a servant. Jesus said no to keeping all that pre-cosmic equality with God status and took on limited form as a human, becoming son of man as well as son of God. So he can relate to us. That's a marvel. Hebrews 4.15 For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. That saying no to keeping divine privilege is part of the no in kenosis, the Greek term we find in verse 7 but made himself nothing, sorry, back up here, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Greek, the term is kanao, or kenosis that we get, to make empty, to make void from kenos empty, like in verse 3, empty glory or vainglory, kenodoxia for you who love Greek. There is a no in kenosis. Christ made himself nothing, no thing, taking the very nature of a servant. Servant? But he's Lord. He's the boss. 
What an upside-down reversal of roles. The lowering, humbling, saying no to privilege didn't stop there. Verse 8, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. This was no ordinary death like passing away peacefully in your bed. Romans executed their criminals in the most torturous, excruciatingly painful way possible as a deterrent to others. And Jesus chose that suffering so forgiveness could be possible for you and for me. Hebrews 5, 7. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Jesus said no in kenosis, emptying himself, becoming a servant, humbling himself all the way to obediently dying on the cross, suffering immensely as a propitiation, a payment for our sins. He loves you that much. He said no to so much to what that he was entitled to, so he could say yes to welcoming you to heaven, a forgiven and sanctified former sinner. He said no to become our divine yes, making good all God's promises for those who are his. 2 Corinthians 1.20 For as many, no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. The path of Christianity is the path of humility, servanthood, obedience, allowing God to be God in your life, not yourself. Not some other enticing idol that begs our worship. Jesus taught in uh, Matthew 23, 12, if I can get back to my slides here. Sorry, my phone just uh, blipped out on me here. Um, He said, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. He lived it. He demonstrated it. God the Father put his stamp of approval on the Son's sacrifice by raising Jesus from the dead to be seen by eyewitnesses. And Jesus would come to his disciples and say in Matthew 28, 18, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. What a thought. He was complete servant, and then he's been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Let me get to the right place in my slides again here. Technology is wonderful when it works. There we go. So, key to renunciation is bowing to Jesus. Paul's hymn describes this in verses 9 to 11. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. God had a purpose. That is a purpose word. God had a purpose in raising Jesus up, exalting him to the highest place, giving him rank, name, title above all others. The purpose is that 
our knee might bow and our tongue confess him as Lord. When people do that, God's glory is made known. His goodness to sinners magnified. His wonderful plan to bring reconciliation to a hostile, miserable world is unpacked and showcased. Has your knee bowed? Is your tongue confessing Jesus is Lord? That's at the very heart of becoming a Christian. Repentance and the new birth opening the door in your life to the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 3. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. You see, there's a virus more deadly and devilish than widespread than the coronavirus. It's a pride pandemic. All have sinned. We came for sinners from our mother's womb. But there's already a vaccine for this selfishness virus. Inject yourself, not with bleach, but with the cross of Jesus. Let the nails of his cross pierce you. The nails that held him there for love of you. Not because he deserved to die. He was absolutely pure and sinless. We can't beat the selfishness virus on our own, by our own strength. We need his help to be born over again by his spirit. To die to self, as Jesus taught. Luke 9.23, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. Galatians 5.24, those who belong to Christ Jesus, I hope that's you sitting here this morning, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Next section, indwelt to endeavor. Overcoming selfish ambition and vain conceit begins with the decision to submit ourselves to Jesus' leading. Let him be Lord of us, our Lord in control, as well as our Savior, the one through whom we are rescued from sin and its penalties. Not just Savior, he's Lord and Savior. But an amazing thing happens when we do that. God's Spirit comes into our lives to reform our thoughts and desires and empower us to put what God wants into action. Back up to verse 1 in our passage. Where do we get encouragement? From being united with Christ. Where do we get comfort? From his love. Whence springs fellowship with the Spirit. It's an organic union. God himself coming into our lives and producing the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22, right inside us. In verse 12, Paul enjoins the church to be obedient, which comes much more easily when you've latched on to humility, and to give expression to their faith through action. 2.12. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, revering God, having a a proper respect for his omnipotent power and divine right to judge at the end of our lives, or when Jesus comes, if sooner, ought to motivate us to be obedient and at work for him. It's not that we work To earn our salvation, once we're saved, we work out that salvation. Nate Saint was one of five missionaries who were killed by the Aka Indians. He once said that his life did not change until he came to grips with the idea that, quote, obedience is not a momentary option. It is a die-cast decision made beforehand. 
Obedience is not a momentary option. It is a die-cast decision made beforehand. End quote. But verse 13 has some jaw-dropping truth that clarifies how this is possible. 2.13, for it's God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Can you read that with me? For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. So we're to work out our salvation, but we're not the only ones working. God himself is active in the Christ follower, both shaping their desires to will and their actions to act, bringing these into conformity with his good purpose, what pleases him. There was once a laborer who was a mature Christian and gave a solid testimony before all who knew him. His boss came to him one day and said, You know, whatever you got, I want. You have such peace and joy and contentment. How can I get this? The laborer said, Go to your home, put on your best suit, come down here and work in the mud with the rest of us, and you can have it. What are you talking about? I could never do that. I'm the boss. You're the worker. I can't do that. That's beneath my dignity. The boss came back a couple of months later and said, I ask you again, what is it that you have and how can I get it? I told you, go put on your best suit, come down and work in the mud with us and you can have it. Again, the boss became furious and stormed off. Finally, in desperation, he came back to the laborer and said, I don't care what it takes. I'll do anything. The laborer said, Will you put on your best suit and come down and work in the mud? The boss agreed that he would do even that. And the laborer said, You don't have to. The point had been made. The laborer knew what was standing between the boss and Christ, pride and self. Once he was prepared to swallow his pride and humble himself, getting down to work in the mud even while wearing his best suit, his desperation and submission opened the door to the abundance Christ had to offer. I like that story too because it pictures in a way exactly what Jesus did to make salvation possible for us. He put off his best suit, laid aside his divine glory with all its position and privilege, and came to earth down to a humble, smelly manger to be born as one of us here in the mud where we live. His no to supernatural glory made possible his yes for us, opening, opening the way to God's most precious promises. Repeatedly, the Apostle Paul prayed, asking God to take away a thorn in the flesh that was causing him some undisclosed pain and suffering. Jesus' answer to him was this, 2 Corinthians 12, 9, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul concluded, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Tie that back into where he says, God is at work in us. May you this week submit your life to God and find out for yourself how his power can accomplish much through you, giving you both the desire and the power to do what pleases him. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, thank you for setting aside Jesus, so much heavenly power and glory, all for the sake of becoming human, 
so you could take our sin penalty on yourself. We confess our reluctance at times to let you be Lord. We're so bent in the tendency to want to run our own show. Yet we know how much that has hurt others and cut us off from you. Have mercy on us. Forgive us, Heavenly Father. Send your Holy Spirit to direct our hearts and help us choose and then do what's best in your eyes. Thank you for loving us so, blessing us with your unity, your love and comfort and compassion. May others see you through us and through our fellowship. In Jesus' name, amen.